0: Today's episode is sponsored by Interpop. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. Just a reminder, CoinDesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Sheila Warren.
1: Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. When I joined the World Economic Forum in 2017, the two things everyone in the blockchain space was talking about were Bitcoin and supply chains. This was a few months before Maersk and IBM launched TradeLens, an initiative focused on bringing blockchain to logistics and supply chains. Walmart was exploring using blockchain to streamline the food supply process. And shortly thereafter, I ate my first piece of tuna that could be tracked from ocean to table using, you guessed it, a blockchain. The forum subsequently convened a 100-entity global consortium that last spring released a toolkit on how to responsibly deploy a blockchain in supply chain context. Our goals were to cement the idea that, as I like to put it, blockchain is a team sport, necessitating new models of cooperation and consortium formation in low-trust environments, and to show people how to even go about starting the often difficult conversation with competitors and others. Now, as it turns out, the toolkit launched about a month after COVID-related lockdowns began, and it's now being used to support vaccine and PPE distribution. The toolkit's 14 different policy areas might sound unsexy, issues like how to deal with liability, taxes, cybersecurity, financial reporting, creditors, but these are the building blocks of the global economy. And this leads me to the topic of today's episode, trade financing. Trade financing, where financial institutions provide credit facilities, think loans or promissory notes, in order to guarantee the exchange of goods, is actually a centuries-old industry. It dates back to the notes and letters of credit inscribed into clay tablets in ancient Mesopotamia. Trade finance was actually used throughout the Roman Empire and it was vital to trade between the American colonists and their English and later continental European trading partners. More recently, it's been a driver of globalization, and it caught the spotlight again after the 2008 global financial crisis, as these credit instruments allow companies to unlock working capital during stress liquidity situations. Even amid the COVID-19 crisis, the global market for trade finance was estimated over US $7.6 trillion in the year 2020 and it's projected to reach a revised size of US 10.4 trillion by 2026. Today, approximately 80 to 90% of world trade is dependent on trade finance, meaning that in many cases, goods simply cannot cross borders without it. This is particularly true in emerging markets and developing economies and for SMEs, as risk perception, jurisdictional differences, new counterparty relationships, and geographic distances, among other factors, create a need to document and share risk about shipments. However, trade finance has traditionally sat on top of the existing banking system. And as those of you who listen to this show regularly will recall, de-risking and other practices mean that certain parts of the world simply don't have as much access to the banking system as others. As a result, there's currently a $1.5 trillion global trade financing gap. Sadly, too many small producers remain excluded from the benefits of trade finance. And we'll get into the implications of this later in our episode. But the bottom line is this. Purchaser companies want to wait as long as possible before paying for supplies, while suppliers need their cash fast. So middlemen have filled this gap by taking some of the risk out of the exchange. These entities pay the suppliers faster, minus a small percentage fee as the cost of getting a quick payment, and then allow time for the buyer to pay them, the middlemen, back. But sometimes things can go horribly awry. Such is the case with Green Capital, which, although it was valued at $3.5 billion less than two years ago, filed for bankruptcy in London a few weeks ago. Turns out it had been collateralizing supplier invoices to raise funds, essentially borrowing for its own needs against its client assets. And well, that didn't go so well. The New York Times declared recently that Greensill's dazzlingly fast failure is one of the most spectacular collapses of a global finance firm in over a decade. There's hope that blockchain technology can not only prevent abuses like this, but also level the field for smaller suppliers, giving them new tools to unlock value but there's still a lot of confusion about what is or isn't possible. So I'm absolutely thrilled today to be joined by two experts who could help us make sense of all of this. First, we'll welcome Rebecca Liao, the co-founder of SkewChain, a blockchain company that provides an end-to-end platform for trade and supply chain. SkewChain was also a World Economic Forum tech pioneer for 2019, and Rebecca herself was instrumental in the creation of the supply chain toolkit that I mentioned. We'll then bring in Aditya Menon, the CEO of TallyX, an open financial supply chain marketplace. Talix brings the power of tokenization to suppliers' receivable accounts, turning those claims on their customers into financing vehicles. Before we turn to our guests, let's welcome my co-host, Michael Casey. Hey, Michael. Hi, Sheila. So this is our second time getting together today. We started off this morning pretty early when you moderated for us on the token economy.
2: It was earlier for you than for me, obviously.
1: Pretty early for me. Yes, (laughs) The 7 a.m. start, 6.30 call time, Yes.
2: It was a good chat. I mean, it was a good chat. and It was interesting to think that the focus there was tokenization, NFTs. The UAE, we had a minister for economy from the United Arab Emirates talking about tokenization. And we had, of course, you know, Harry Yef about the whole NFT phenomenon and what that means for arts. This is at the Global Technology Governance Summit at the World Economic Forum. Tokenization, I think we'll probably get into some of that in, in our conversation today. But I, I, I was struck as I was thinking to do that there are real potential linkages here to supply chains. It seems like there's an odd thing to go from something that everyone's focused on in terms of art with NFTs, but it's this sort of unique, sort of non fungible quality of something like a piece of art that actually is in parallel to, say, a letter of credit, a unique trade document that may well be there's some parallels here.
1: Yeah, you know, it's so funny to me that the, the universe tends to be divided, right? When in reality, all of us who are really kind of bullish on this space believe that blockchain has, despite the sort of early days of like frothy headiness, you know, where blockchain for everything and the Long Island blockchain iced tea and whatnot. You know, the, the fact remains, froth aside, that there are actually important use cases in a variety of sectors. And not all of those are as sexy and get kind of the media attention or airtime, but nevertheless, they're critical to the global economy. And so trade finance has always struck me as one of those. that's a little under the radar for reasons I don't quite understand. I think it's because the whole area is rather mysterious. So perhaps we can turn to our guests to take some of the mystery out of this. I'd love to start with you, Rebecca, and I, I would really love to start with a little bit more about Greensill. Can you just walk us through that situation briefly? Like, How on earth is such a thing possible? And can blockchain help prevent that kind of abuse? Hey, Sheila, great to be with you and Michael, you as
3: well. Thanks so much for having me on. Money Reimagined is one of my favorite podcasts in the blockchain space. I'm very happy to be on.
2: Oh, thanks for <laughs> saying that.
3: <laughs> you know, I, I mean it. I absolutely mean it. That's a great question with respect to Green Cell. So everyone in the trade finance space was frankly shocked when we heard that Green Cell was going to collapse and that it had entered into insolvency proceedings in the UK. And the bank was being closed in Germany and Australia had refused bankruptcy protection. I mean, it was a collapse of the Heretofore, pretty successful fund um, for trade finance and really a beacon for the industry. So, what happened? Greensill sold itself as a fintech company. I think it started to believe that it was a fintech company, but it was never a fintech company. So, how did that actually contribute to the collapse? So, let's go through the mechanics of a trade finance slash supply chain finance transaction. And these were the kinds of transactions that Greensill was engaging in. I think this is helpful for understanding what exactly went wrong in their business model and also their internal processes for executing these transactions. So how it works, as Sheila, you mentioned, there's a supplier who's got an invoice. They send that invoice to the buyer and they ask the buyer to pay them in 60, 90 days, let's say. But from the supplier's perspective, they got to get cash to buy more raw materials so they can make more stuff and then sell more stuff. So that's where trade supply chain finance comes in. They can get paid much earlier than 60 or 90 days. So how do funders like a Greensill or any sort of international commercial bank that engages in trade finance, how do they make that possible for the supplier? So what they do is they go ahead and take that invoice. They take that receivable. They will pay the supplier early minus a discount. That discount is their fee for providing the service. Now, what is that discount based on? Sometimes it's based on the supplier's credit risk. But what's more popular nowadays is for that discount to be based off of the buyer's credit risk. If you know that the buyer is going to be paying for this invoice, then it's possible to base that discount off of usually a much more favorable credit risk that the buyer provides. So that's sort of the general mechanics of a transaction. Now, in order to hedge against any sort of risk that the buyer is just going to walk away from this, banks and any sort of fund that engage in this sort of financing, they will require credit insurance. Credit insurance is where you go to an insurance company like a Tokyo Marine, and you ask them to insure against the buyer not paying this invoice. Now, it's not perfect as a mechanism because as with any sort of insurance, you've got to wait. If there is some sort of claim, you got to file a claim, you got to go through the process, and then maybe you get 100% of your loss, maybe not. So it's not perfect, but it's pretty standard nowadays to ask for that. So, what did Greensill do? Greensill took out a huge insurance policy, a couple policies from Tokyo Marine, which is a huge insurance conglomerate out of Japan. They did this at the insistence of Credit Suisse, which was providing them a vehicle for purchasing these receivables, essentially and being able to pay these suppliers early. Now, the way that Credit Suisse had structured this fund was sort of the magic behind Cell. Instead of partnering with a bank, let's say, and partnering with their trade finance department to execute these transactions, what Greensill was saying was, we have technology. We can execute these transactions in a much more streamlined manner. Just give us the money and have investors invest in this fund and they will get returns based off of the discounts, our financial arbitrage, what have you. They'll get returns off of this. So Credit Suisse said, okay, Lex Greensill is a great name. We trust that this fund has the ability to pull this off. So let's go ahead and give them this capital. However, we will require credit insurance. So what happened within the span of a few weeks was Tokyo Marine pulled out their credit insurance, which caused Credit Suisse to say, we will no longer fund Greensill on these receivables which then put Green Cell in severe financial distress. And here we are. So that's what went wrong. All right. So how could blockchain have prevented this? I'm going to go at it from two angles. One is just the processing angle. You know, how could blockchain as a technology have made Green Cell a better business in terms of business process? But also, how could blockchain have provided Green Cell with better financial opportunities? Because ultimately, a fund collapses because it chases yields in a sort of unnatural way. I think Greensill started to get into financings that are not strictly supply chain finance because they had so much pressure to deploy this incredible amount of capital that they had been given. So let's start with the process piece. As I described the transaction, you can tell there are lots of moving parts. And the ways that banks will execute on these transactions in order to keep track of all the moving parts is a lot of paperwork and a lot of people. Greensill has, I think, roughly 900 employees. So not a small company, but not a bank. In order for them to actually execute successfully, they needed technology. That's where blockchain comes in. So the ability to verify information across multiple counterparties, such that you can keep track of the progress in your transactions in real time, and surface that data, make that data available, not just to your internal operations, but also to external lenders and to other counterparties who have use for that information. That's what blockchain can provide in terms of the process improvements. In terms of the financial opportunity, Greensill started to go after things like circular financing, where SoftBank being a huge investor, they were putting in equity investments at the same time That they were lending to Green Cell, and then they were encouraging their portfolio companies, other portfolio companies to also use Green Cell as a lender. You can tell right away that that's not a sound financial structure. The other thing was that they were starting to use data in order to predict future sales of their clients and then finance those future sales. Now they were trying to do this in industries where they use a lot of commodities. These commodities will then be used for raw materials, for manufacturing. You tend to get a lot of sort of repeat business in that business model. And that's why they probably thought, oh, we can accurately predict the sales that you'll get, and then we can lend against that. Fact of the matter is, there is no such thing as predictability around pricing of commodities. This is why you have a whole industry around hedging around that. And you also have trading companies who provide that service. So chasing returns like that, I think was the wrong way to try to increase yield from supply chain finance. Better way to increase yield is to do more of the supply chain. So right now, supply chain finance is usually between the buyer and what we call a tier one supplier. So that's a supplier that sells immediately into the buyer. There is so much liquidity to be unlocked beyond tier one of the supply chain. And that's where blockchain really shines, because it is a distributed system that even in a permissioned environment provides trust that wasn't there before. And it allows for assets that come from the buyer or anywhere else in the supply chain to then be distributed across the supply chain so that you can unlock liquidity. So if I had an invoice for $1,000 to Boeing, let's say, I can turn around and actually give my tier two supplier, the supplier that sells to the tier one, which then sells to the buyer. That's sort of how supply chain is, how the terminology works. But I can then turn around and give 900 of that to my raw material supplier who can turn around and give 500 of that to their raw material supplier, so on and so forth. This sort of liquidity unlocking in the supply chain was not possible without blockchain. And the returns there are much higher than what you would typically get in supply chain finance, which is around 6 to 10%. If you start to go upstream in the supply chain, suppliers get smaller, the financial arbitrage gets larger. So that's where they should have been looking for yields. but you couldn't
1: have done that without technology. (laughs) Rebecca, that was so helpful and interesting. I have about a billion follow-up questions, but I'll just ask this, again, kind of simple framing question. People talk a lot about increased efficiency and supply chains resulting from the introduction of blockchain. And I think the assumption is that things are going to go faster. Most people kind of think that efficiency and speed are synonyms, and they're not. So is trade finance part of what people should be thinking about when we talk about increased efficiency, not just from unlocking more liquidity, but also from, this isn't necessarily a speed thing, but the ability for that trustless environment to suddenly have more trustworthiness? That gets at a different aspect of supply chain and blockchain, but
3: that and liquidity are actually related to one another. I'll tell you why. The liquidity aspect gets at capital efficiency, but what you're talking about, Sheila, is operational efficiency in the supply chain you're talking about supply chain management. As any supply chain finance professional will tell you now, the wall between supply chain management and finance is breaking down. And that's because from an enterprise perspective, if I have a complex supply chain, I can't have a simple financial instrument that's going to help my suppliers because that's going to ignore a lot of the operational complexities that frankly, I mean, they exist. You can't get around them in supply chain. So in terms of efficiency, I guess the best example is what was happening in the Suez Canal with the ship getting stuck there and no one really knowing what to do for a few days. I mean, once it's stuck, it's stuck, right? Then it it becomes just sort of a physical strength problem. You got to get it out of there. But in terms of what was happening around that incident and prior to that incident, it really is a lapse in uh, information. It was a gap in real-time information, which doesn't really exist in the supply chain. Now, the thing about information or data, as we call it nowadays, and most of this is surfaced in terms of some sort of digital data, it's somewhere in the supply chain. Someone knows it, but do they want to give it to you? And even if you gave them the means to give it to you, would they still withhold it? And usually the answer to those two questions is yes. They have the data, but they may not give it to you for commercially sensitive reasons or they just don't want to undertake the expense of adopting the technology. So that's actually where, at least Skew Chain, where we found the liquidity piece provides a really important incentive for that. So how exactly do you incentivize your suppliers and others in the ecosystem to give you valuable data? You got to pay them at the end of the day. You got to give them some sort of monetary incentive. That's the fastest way to do it. But you're absolutely right that I think blockchain is the best rails for getting data from different counterparties unconnected to one another and who frankly don't really trust one another. I think that's a great aspect of blockchain.
1: Meet Interpop, a super team redefining the future of NFTs and fandom. From comics and trading card games to digital collectibles and everything in between,
3: they are building the architecture of an entirely new landscape of fandom using technology built on the Tezos blockchain to drive their vision. Visit hellointerpop.io to learn more. That's hellointerpop.io to learn more.
2: What I find interesting about some of this is the idea that information becomes money and that the inefficiencies that we're talking to her about is about the lack of transparency and mechanisms to finance things is often about bringing transparency to otherwise opaque situations. And the tension that underlies the control of that information is what you're trying to resolve for. And I find that really interesting. On that note, Aditra, I want to get into you know, how TallyX is approaching these kinds of problems. Uh, but before we do, let's just set up one aspect of this. Sheila talked about this $1.5 trillion financing gap in the world. We hear a lot about suppliers who don't have a credit history, who don't have access to you know, the kinds of sophisticated, and by the way, extremely complex sounding financial arrangements that Rebecca was just describing, who really just can't participate necessarily in the global marketplace or have to do so under a cash-only environment and carry enormous amounts of risk. How does this information problem feed into that problem?
4: It's important to just touch upon those numbers again. I find the 1.5 trillion quite suspect because it's like having blinkers on. If you're a bank, you'd like to believe that the number is 1.5 trillion. If you're the World Trade Organization, the statistics tell a very different story. So let's just look at the stats first and then back into that. So we're talking about last year, 19.7 trillion of goods were traded globally, which contracted starting with the trade wars and then the, the pandemic. At anywhere between six to seven percent globally. Services, however, has been on the increase and didn't slow down through the pandemic. It was $5.8 trillion last year, but growing at about 3.8%. And if you look at the demand for 30 to 120 days financing, that demand, and I think you touched upon it, is about 10 trillion. If you look at what banks service today, both banks, non-banks, and you know, through securitization and other instruments, that's a little north of 5 trillion. So the unmet demand is not 1.5 trillion, it's 5 trillion. That's the first problem. The second thing is that's, as Rebecca and Sheila pointed out, 60% of suppliers today go unfinanced, right? If you look at it from the bottom up, if you look at it from top down and you look at, let's say, the major auto manufacturers who have large supply chains, their take up of supply chain finance programs on an average for, like, say let's say, Fortune 500 companies is sub-15%. So if only 15% of tier one are taking up supply chain finance, ergo, your trapped liquidity equals to 85%, right? If you just do the math. So what we're saying is that the trapped liquidity constitutes a large part of tier one and tier two and beyond get almost nothing out of this, which means they have to do unsecured lending, put their house on hock or whatever the case may be. And that's the reality of the situation. If you look at the IFC report that was done on India a year and a half ago, they identified that the unmet demand for working capital in India was about three hundred fifty billion dollars, and in China, post the P two P lending meltdown, it's three times that number. That's on the demand side. So clearly, you know there are two major business problems: one, trap liquidity, as you quite rightly pointed out, Rebecca. Uh, The second one is connecting the dots. How do you get people to engage? And you touched upon that as well. What are the incentives for the stakeholders to engage? So our approach really has been to try and find a technological solution to these two fundamental problems. One is really an Uber problem of connecting the dots. The other one is an Airbnb problem saying, I've got an asset. How do I actually leverage it?
2: Pause for a moment on that, like the $5 trillion of unmet demand. It's, first of all, that's, that's human beings. That's people for whom this is their livelihood. And in fact, obviously, because it is small companies as a representative of the number of suppliers out there, it's huge in terms of the human beings it affects. And it's this perpetual competition problem. You're starting behind the eight ball all the time, whereas the big guys are able to. I mean, that's the kind of mechanism by which the Amazons or the Walmarts or the whomevers take over the world because they can finance themselves in a way that these little guys can't. So I just want to acknowledge that this is a hugely important problem to solve when it comes to global inequity and really just opportunities around financial inclusion. But can you go into a little bit about the mechanics of how you're trying to solve this problem, right? You've got the Uber problem, the Airbnb problem, which I find really an interesting way to frame it. How do you go about it with blockchains and tokens?
4: It's important to set the stage for that to understand you know, clearly there is traditional trade finance, which are there is a credit, collection instruments, et cetera, which are handled by traditional banks. Today, that constitutes roughly about 40% of global trade, and 60% is handled today under open account. It's important because in the LC, an exporter can take that LC even before they manufacture the goods and get a packing credit, which means they can get pre shipment financed. In the open account basis, since you don't have this trust equation of the issuing and advising banks, it's very difficult to get pre shipment finance, which means that a lender needs to take individual risk decisions on each one of those manufacturers, however big or small they may be, right? If they're bigger, less of an issue, you may be able to get open account pre shipment finance. If you're smaller, you're out of luck. Fundamentally, you need to understand that while the LC covered for the ability to do this kind of pre shipment finance, that doesn't exist under open account. So you need other mechanisms. And that's where things like artificial intelligence, et cetera, come in, which will help you to make sense not just out of the financials, but about actual supply chain performance. You may have a nut and bolt manufacturer who has poor financials, but has been very, very diligent in producing the goods and supplying them, let's say, over a 10 or 15-year period. And even credit ratings that exist from Dun & Bradstreet, etc., don't take into account supply chain performance. They take into account only the financial aspect of it. So you need to create some new mechanism what our approach is, you know, can we actually create a digital reputation on the blockchain? So we've actually adapted an Ethereum token to address the reputation on the blockchain, which can then be updated both from public data, but also based on performance information, which is generated over time. You can't solve this overnight, but you can actually set the stage for solving this over time and data. The second one is that in order to look at the token framework and technology that you need to unlock, there are two aspects to it. One is what do you do you know, before the payment gets approved and what do you do after the payment gets approved? Because before payment approval, you're taking risk on either buyer or supplier, depending on where you start your journey. After the buyer approves and accepts that they will pay, that risk shifts to the buyer. And it becomes, in, in essence, a digital obligation to pay. So therefore, when we look at the token technology, token needs to be polymorphic which means it needs to exhibit certain properties and behavior at different times in the trade lifecycle. And that's important to understand. The second thing is that unlike other asset classes, uh, which are tokenized, trade kind of changes over time, right? Because you can start with an original order, which has, let's say, multiple invoices. Those can have partial shipments, and you can have partial payments, and you can have discrepancies, or you can have credit notes, and debit notes, and there's a lot of complexity involved. So we started with the idea of a fungible token and a non-fungible token and realized we actually needed something different because the original order for, of the goods or services being produced or delivered is non-fungible because that's unique. However, in the lifecycle of the trade transaction, you have a lot of fungible value that comes out of it. What do I mean by that? Rebecca pointed out to the fact that, for example, you could take a $1,000 purchase order or invoice and then split that up uh, so that everybody sees value as you go to tier one, tier two, tier three. So what happens is that the original order of 1,000 is the non-fungible piece, which can't be changed. But depending on behavior, you will end up with basically uh, fungible tokens, which in aggregate add up to the non-fungible piece. So we therefore decided that you needed a much more complex token. And so we combined two Ethereum constructs. One was ERC721, which is the non-fungible token, and ERC20, which is the fungible token, and combined them to create a new proposed standard, ERC1513, basically, which is what we call a re-fungible token. So the idea there is once you have that, then you can use it for a variety of different uh, supply chain and open account scenarios. We never intended to use this for traditional trade finance. We think there's lots of good consortia, such as Marco Polo, WeTrade, Voltron, and many others who are using the collective power of banks and financial institutions to solve that problem. We are a very focused fintech and said, let's try and figure out something that can solve the problem of one corporate or one bank in a useful way. And perhaps over time, you know, we can get to the idea of interoperability, where... This token, once it's created, can actually move from, let's say, one marketplace to the other. And that was the concept that we had to ensure that you democratize who can finance. I mean, to the whole idea of green silk, it's important to have democratization of financial options so that it can be financed by the corporate, by the bank, high net worth individual, insurance, asset managers, securitization through commercial paper, governments, even through exim banks, etc. So there's a variety of different people who would like to participate in a game that has been fairly one-sided towards banks so far. But we think that decentralization offers a very different way to bring the stakeholders to the table and for them to enjoy a scheme that has incentives built into the beholder in terms of how they set up and deploy the platform. For us, we don't care where the starting point is. The starting point can be a bank, it can be a corporate, it can be a B2B network.
1: That's so interesting. I just want to flag for long-time listeners, when Michael and I have said in the past, unfungible tokens have been around for a while. You've heard Aditya talk about unfungible tokens, and this is an example, right? So it's not just about even the creator economy, although we spent a good cycle of podcast episodes talking about that and the value there. But as you can see, these kinds of concepts, interoperability came up in the remarks that you just made. I think they, they apply across a variety of Of different sectors and spaces. And we can go into that in a little bit. But Rebecca, first I want to turn to you because SkewChain has a little bit of a different approach to this. You talk about the creation of a liquid supply chain. And so I'm curious if you can tell us how you're utilizing the blockchain to solve some of these problems. Sure. Absolutely. So
3: let's walk back a few years. SkewChain did the first letter of credit transaction on the blockchain back in late 2016, I want to say. That transaction involved Wells Fargo, the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, and this cotton company called Brigand Cotton out of Australia. The idea was we wanted to prove that LCs could be done on the blockchain. And then, of course, the ambition was to scale that out. What we learned very quickly is that in order for any sort of trade instrument to be scaled out, there would need to be standards around it. And there would need to be some sort of interoperability. Now, this was early days. This was 2016. So standardization, interoperability, I think the industry has moved a lot farther along on both of those, but we're still working on those projects. So we thought, okay, how do we speed up those two aspects of a blockchain-based solution? So what we did was we partnered with BAFT, B-A-F-T, which stands for the Bankers Association for Finance and Trade. They are the largest trade association in the world for transaction banking. They're based out of Washington, D.C. and come up with a lot of the best practices for transaction banking. So we partnered with them to come up with a new standard for payment commitments on any sort of blockchain network. So it would facilitate interoperability because it would be understood on any network. And it would also be a standard that would satisfy legal obligations across multiple jurisdictions so that it can be used as a live trade instrument in transactions. Now, what was interesting was once DLPC was published back in 2019 for the first time, we took it to our enterprise customers and their banks. And what we were finding was that there was such demand for something like this, that very quickly, it went from being called a standard to being called a financial asset in its own right. So what we had actually created was a digital asset. Now, it is not a cryptocurrency. It is not a token in and of itself. However, we do partner with token companies in order to peg the DLPC to a token so that it can take on value that would be independent in the market and and whatnot. But a DLPC derives its value from the underlying instrument that it's connected to. So how are DLPCs used? They are used to replace things like letters of credit, guarantees, standby letters of credit, but it's also used in open account supply chain finance transactions. The real value add, as Aditya was alluding to, for blockchain and supply chain finance is not necessarily in that tranche of transactions that are already well served, which is supply chain finance transactions between a tier one supplier and their buyer. Usually the value is going to be found in tier two, tier three, or even if you take a different segment of that supply chain and you leave out the buyer entirely. So that's what the DLPC facilitates. At the end of the day, it is a payment commitment on a blockchain. As a legal matter, it's known as an electronic negotiable instrument. The reason why I point that out is more than just a technicality is that the fact that it is an electronic negotiable instrument is what allows it to be adopted by more traditional financial institutions, as well as supply chain funds and other fintechs that are looking at this space in terms of jurisdictions where an electronic negotiable instrument is valid in the US. It's valid in certain states, and it was just made valid in Singapore as well. So a lot of our transactions are based on these two jurisdictions, but you're finding a lot more traction for this kind of instrument around the world. So what do we do with the DLPC? In addition to traditional trade finance, we do deep tier financing. So that's where you take a DLPC that has been committed by say a buyer or their tier one supplier, and we're able to Take that upstream in the supply chain such that everybody gets the buyer's cost of capital plus maybe a little bit of spread. So that's how we have been providing liquidity to the supply chain. Now, why do we call it a liquid supply chain? One, because we are unlocking that liquidity, but also, you know, Sheila, you mentioned earlier that it's not just about supply chain finance. It's also about supply chain management. At the end of the day, what a buyer is interested in is maybe the treasury spreads a lot of the reason why buyers worked with Greensill was that they were able to get some sort of financial return on their treasury. And that is a compelling reason for these large corporates to sponsor a supply chain finance program for their supply chain. However, are those spreads enough? What we saw with the Greensill example is that there is something appreciable there, but is it enough to incentivize a buyer? You have to give a buyer a little more. That's what we found. And what we found with these enterprises, they're looking for data. They're looking for visibility in their supply chain. They want to know exactly what's going on beyond tier one of the supply chain, so they can plan more accurately. And more importantly, be able to make the products that their customers actually want to buy. They want data. So that's how the liquid supply chain flows. Money is going upstream to the suppliers. Data is going downstream to the buyers.
2: It's appearing like there's two quite different models that you're both looking at here. And again, I want to drill down into this, I don't know if you call it an RFT, this refungible token. That sounds fascinating. But before we do, to you again, Rebecca, when you talk about this discovery you've made that it's data and this is what people are going to pay for, what can you tell us about how tangible the adoption actually is right now? You've used it in the present tense we are doing this, we're doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Sheila started out saying everybody was buzzing and talking about supply chains as the major use case back you know, in 2017. You don't hear much about it anymore. Is that because it's now quietly doing its magic uh, behind the scenes, the blockchain's achieving things, or do we still have a long way to go? Where are you guys in terms of your adoption?
3: I think that with any sort of blockchain project in the supply chain, you got to lead with the money. I know it sounds crude, but at the end of the day, the financing really is the major value add of blockchain in supply chain. So that's what we found in our implementations. We do have many systems in production across our enterprise customers. Our direct customer is always the enterprise. It's very rarely a bank. Usually how it goes is that an enterprise will use the solution and they will bring their bank partners along, many of whom we're already working with because we tend to work with the larger international commercial banks. But this is a solution that is meant primarily to solve enterprise problems. How it usually goes is that we will put a financing solution in place. As a matter of course, the data that the buyers are looking for are going to be submitted to the blockchain just as part of these transactions. So, in order for a supplier to get any sort of financing, they're going to have to submit the data that is of interest to the buyer. That's how the buyer is getting the data. Now, in terms of doing interesting things with that data, that's sort of a higher level of implementation. But yes, we are in production across multiple industries. It is meant to be an industry agnostic platform. And the idea is once you start to scale out among the buyer, their trusted suppliers, that it will then scale out to the rest of the supply chain. Onboarding, I think, is one of the major obstacles that would face any sort of blockchain solution. And I think that we're getting much closer in terms of ease of use of the technology to onboarding suppliers without a lot of friction, without them having to, as I mentioned before, give up data that might be sensitive to them et cetera, et cetera.
2: The way I'm reading this, there's this tension all the time. And where is the value proposition that will bring liquidity? You've got Rebecca there talking about data as the thing that people are going to come into. You talked about, if I understand correctly, this distinction between something that is non-fungible and something that's fungible. It seems to me that the fungibility is what liquidity is because you want to be able to create a a big, broad market and something that you can easily trade back and forth in. Whereas we think of something unique like an NFT, like a painting, for example, or in this case, one single invoice is not particularly liquid because there's only one of them and the reference prices are different. Am I describing what you're trying to resolve correctly? And I'd just like to understand a little bit more the mechanism to how we get this refundable token. And secondly, where is that in production? Is it just a spec at this stage? Have you rolled it out? Where do you expect to be with it?
4: when we looked at this and you know spoke to enterprise uh, cios uh, bank cios etc i think we got a lot of pushback from them about uh, first of all deploying this on the public ethereum while we have both operating models public we also have a private model which is ethereum hosted in amazon that allows you to create an ecosystem for a single bank or a single enterprise which is useful to them because we're solving the business problem and i think over the last year What we've seen is that the mention of blockchain and tokenization has gone more behind the scenes because they're asking for value rather than demonstration of technology. And this is what I'm seeing more and more, is that if you want to get to value, then you need to show the benefits that come from, let's say, margin increase for the corporate treasurer, margin increase for the bank, ability for tier one to have an incentive in it so that if they push down, they get something back. We've been focusing more on solving those problems. As we've looked at that, we have have taken the use cases to then go and enhance the token functionality in terms of what the token offers and the sophistication that's required for us to deliver it. One of the key things that we saw was we didn't want friction. I was part of the DLPC standard discussions that happened, which Rebecca pointed out. And we think that's a great move. But I also think that as it takes state by state, country by country to approve the new negotiable instrument, we kind of looked at this differently and said, if the digital obligation to pay were not a negotiable instrument, what if it was simply a promise to pay, which is a buyer today extends a promise to pay? And is there a simpler way to do this without upsetting the regulatory apple cart? Because that's going to take a long time to solve. So what we did was when we looked at the token technology, that's one of the key design constraints. We said, how do we deploy this A market without the regulator throwing the book at us? And can we use a set of existing regulations, i.e. approved payable financing is common practice throughout the world. That's something that's already there. Can I use assignment of proceeds, right? Because at the end of the day, the buyer owes the supplier. That's basically an obligation to pay. How do we digitize that? Use paper if necessary underneath, because a lot of countries still require wet signature, and then create a program model, which will allow them to do things like auto discounting, et cetera. Electronically, and then you hit the whole wall of e-signatures, digital signatures. Are these valid? Not valid, etc. That's where blockchain can help. But outside of China, who has given sanctity to a blockchain contract today? So again, you don't want to bump against these walls in production. You need to solve them before. So we spent the better part of last year getting legal opinions and ensuring that we have a legal construct that doesn't require DLPC regulatory approval in every country, but As long as you can do assignment of proceeds, you have approved payable financing, dynamic discounting, applicable laws, we can simply extend deep-tier finance and all the functionality we need as a legal extension between the parties and counterparties, purely without requiring any government intervention. China has created two negotiable instruments for deep-tier finance, which is the BAD and the CAD. One is called a banker's acceptance draft and the corporate acceptance draft. But that's by regulation. Uh, No other country has done that. Mm. What we spent last year on is the practical implementation of this.
1: It's so funny, Anitya, because you gave me a seg without knowing it. Because our last question, I think we we'll probably have time for, is it really pivoting us to discussions of what are colloquially called trade wars. You know, so people think about trade, like the average person thinks about trade. They know probably nothing about trade finance. They know more now than they did pre pandemic about supply chains, because we've all been at the other end of supply chains, maybe not functioning as well as we had hoped they would prior to the pandemic. And thank you both for the changes that your companies are enacting and helping with that. But let's talk a little bit about trade wars, specifically in the context of kind of US and China. So one thing we know about, there's certain countries that really are predominant suppliers of certain kinds of goods, or where in the case of US and Mexico, a particular item will often cross the border numerous times because that's how the operations have just been set up. And that gets more and more complicated when there are political challenges, and and this can be kind of fraught. But what is the implication around all of this for the use of blockchain? There are some, of course, regulations and laws like the ones you've cited that apply directly to things like the flow of data. But fundamentally, there are opportunities to almost de-emphasize and weigh some of that while still being in compliance because a blockchain can smooth some of the frictions. And some of those frictions are there almost deliberately, and they're political more than they even are operational. How do you think about this? And let, maybe we'll ground this in the context of the US and China. We have a new president now a different approach to China. But still, there is still tension there. And it's kind of widely known around the world. What does all this mean in that context?
4: I can offer something around some of the restrictions that are put in by the State Department. So you had end user certificates, which are required for most trade today, what I call a certificate of origin, sorry. When the US placed sanctions on certain Chinese companies, they meant it very differently this time. And what they said was, it's not just that company. But you need traceability to supplier, supplier, supplier. So if they show up in any extended supply chain, we'll hold you accountable. So that put a huge pressure on organizations in the US doing business with the US or in the US to provide traceability. Because today you don't have knowledge. You know, If you're a Motorola corporation, you know your first-year suppliers, but you have no knowledge what happens beyond that. But this is one government initiative that actually pushed industries to try and find a carrot and stick approach to incentivize them to actually create a list of extended supply chain. The second thing is that in the US-China trade war, what ended up happening was a lot of industries started to shift because they wanted to create resilience in their supply chains. They didn't know what was coming next. A number of manufacturing supply chains shifted either back to Taiwan, Cambodia, Vietnam, aspirationally India, but not a lot there. What happened in actual practice was when you shift to tier one, you also need to shift to tier two, three and four. And today that's where you see the big disconnect is that supply chains are complex. Supply chain finance has been very flat traditionally, which is banks to 5% or 10% of tier one. And that's it. So people have now woken up to the problem saying that you need to have adequate way to finance the extended supply chain. If you want to really build resilience into your supply chain and that's come front and center, there's so much been published about it recently. And we think blockchain is a great way through deep TFNNs to solve that problem.
3: Thanks, Jayla. Let me jump in here with, I guess, a somewhat different aspect. And this starts to go directly into the heart of DeFi. So we've been talking a lot about blockchain in the context of supply chain, uh, which can bridge both DeFi and sort of enterprise blockchain, if you will. But I think with respect to US-China, the really interesting part of this is if we think about the broader technology context, Right. Uh, The U.S. likes to lead on innovation. We're number one. However, China is coming up with a lot of very strong innovation of its own. So not just really copying technology that they see elsewhere, but they're coming up with their own innovation. And what that has prompted both countries to do is China has their famous Made in 2025 initiative, which is that most critical technologies are going to be produced in China. They're going to use Chinese IP by 2025. How the U.S. has responded to that is, well, first off, when you are sort of in the quote-unquote incumbent position, there's not too much urgency, but it started to name critical technologies of its own. These are technologies that are strategic for the U.S., such as artificial intelligence, robotics, 5G, clean tech. Blockchain is typically not named as a technology that is that important to national interest. The reason for that is this. The U.S. is incredibly confident in its role as the predominant market for finance in the world. Uh, most financial international financial rails are based off of US models and uh, the USD remains the reserve currency. And they're very, very secure in that position. They don't think that any sort of FinTech is really going to affect that. Maybe not today is my answer, but I think what China has figured out is that using blockchain, they're able to start shipping away at that position in a really meaningful way. And not to say that the RMB is going to displace the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency or that international financial rails are all of a sudden going to be slanted towards Chinese interests versus U.S. interests or other countries' interests, but more so that they can use blockchain as a meaningful tool of economic statecraft. So just a few examples there. Obviously, China piloted the digital RMB earlier this year it was a smaller pilot, but they are very intent on rolling out this digital currency. And it's not really blockchain-based, but you can see how the two worlds are starting to converge. And the whole idea of a digital currency in that context is to allow for perhaps more surveillance, more convenience, but also just programmable money. I mean, that is sort of the big promise of tokenization, cryptocurrency, any sort of digital currency. So it's starting to set the rails for that. Now, what are they going to do with that digital currency other than allow people to spend it domestically? They're going to use it as a rails for development finance. This was a huge way that the US was able to assert its financial influence across the world post-World War II. I think China sees that opportunity now with a lot of countries that are not receiving the same kind of development finance or not receiving finance on the terms that they would like from the US. So that's another aspect of this. The third thing that I'll mention is with respect to trade agreements, there is a free trade agreement that is being negotiated in the Asia Pacific region right now called the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership RCEP. So what's been discussed is that the digital RM;B is going to be one of the digital currencies and all the infrastructure around that digital currency will be at the heart of this regional trade agreement. Now, at the same time, the U.S. is trying to court everybody in the Asia-Pacific except for China. So you can see how immediately there's this tension between the two countries' international objectives and blockchain plays a huge part in the execution of their respective strategies. So the short answer to your question is that blockchain is a tool of economic statecraft. And I think with respect to the U.S.-China relationship, China has recognized that. The U.S. hasn't really yet but I think they're probably going to recognize it pretty
4: soon. Rebecca, you made a great point. You know, today, SWIFT is pretty much owned and operated by mostly Western banks in terms of the influence there. So the threat of being able to impose sanctions through the use of SWIFT, or non-use of SWIFT, I would say, is a big threat for China. And this ability to use a digital currency to circumvent that, really for them is like laying a new set of financial infrastructure which allows them, as you rightly put it, Rebecca, to negotiate with their trading partners in a very different way and to be therefore free from any possible future uh, sanctions that impact actual payment rails going in and out of China.
1: I almost wish, Michael, I'd made a bingo card for this episode. Based off previous episodes, we hit NFTs, we hit China, we hit global trade, we hit public policy, we hit politics. We didn't even get into identity, what we could have, gone to digital identity and how that's going to play a role in all of this. So thank you both so much, Arithia Menon and Rebecca Liao, for joining us today for this episode on trade finance, supply chains, and so many other topics. If there's one thing I would just take away, it's this. People tend to get buried right now in crypto or NFT or DeFi or whatever the kind of flavor of the week is. And just remember that there are massive systems that are also looking in great detail at this technology. And as both of you noted, both NFTs and DeFi have roots in this space. So if you're not paying attention to trade and you're a blockchain advocate or enthusiast, you should be. Similarly, if you're in trade and you're not really paying attention to the blockchain, you really should be. Because again, slow and steady in some sectors and maybe doesn't get all the media and all the airtime, but it's coming and in many cases, it's already here. Thank you both so much again. As always, my erstwhile host, Michael Casey. Thanks so much. And we'll see you all next week.
0: You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Michael J. Casey, Sheila Warren, Rebecca Liao, and Aditya Minan. Our theme song is Shepherd. and this episode was edited by Adam B. Levine and Rob Mitchell, produced and announced by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. From all of us at Coindesk at the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.